Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I once again talk with editors John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson to get the latest details about turnout as we finish up a two-week early voting period in Nevada before the general election happens on Tuesday, with multiple lawsuits from the Trump campaign looming in the background and massive amounts of early mail-in and in-person ballots to be counted, the editors break it all down for you. After that, I chat with reporters Jackie Valley and Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez about the wild world of school board races in Nevada and what you should be paying attention to as you make your choices in trusty races. Then I chat with associate editor Luce Gray about how she got her start in journalism. She runs our Spanish page, the Nevada Independent and Español, and Spanish podcast and radio show Cafecito con Luz y Michelle. And at the end of the show, I talk with reporter Megan Messerly to get the latest numbers and newest developments related to the coronavirus pandemic in Nevada. All right, I am Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I am joined once again by editors John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson down in Las Vegas on the last day of early voting, October 30th. How's it going, guys? Hi, Joey. Happy so, non-Nevada Day. That's right. That's right. Nevada Day observed today. We're pro- we protest. It's terrible. It's a terrible, <laughs> it's all Mark Amaday's fault. Well, when I, when I was in school, I remember, I think I was thanking Mark Amaday when I didn't have to go to school on Friday. That's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> John, tell our listeners who don't know the backstory what that is. Well, Mark Amaday, when he was a state senator in 1997, got a bill passed that would have, as Joey indicated, changed the observance of Nevada Day to the Friday before Nevada Day if it came on a weekend. Uh, And then it was put as an advisory question on the ballot and passed by about uh, five points and the rest is history. One of the great little historical anecdotes on this is that it was Amaday's uncle who was an assemblyman, Pete Amaday, who in 1939 got the first Nevada Day holiday bill passed. I did not know that. I'm so delighted that I learned something new. And for those of you not in Nevada that listen to the podcast about Nevada politics, Nevada Day is the day that we entered the union. I think most states have something similar. Halloween, which I don't know, somehow says something about Nevada, but I'm too tired to get the metaphor correct. (laughs) Well, speaking of Nevada and politics, John, what are we looking at for for the early vote numbers, you know, the day of the last day of early voting? Yeah, you know, this has been, as I talked about a lot on the early voting blog and, and, and before, including on a great Facebook Live I did with Elizabeth on, on Thursday evening, it's been a different year because of all the mail ballots. And so it's difficult to do an apples to apples comparison, but the Democrats have to be pretty happy where they are right now with a, 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 about a uh, 76,000 lead in Clark County over the Republicans. That's in ballots returned in early voting. And in Washoe County, the numbers just posted, it's now about a 2,400 uh, ballot lead for the Democrats. And so that, that they look pretty good right now, Joey and Elizabeth, but we still have the last day and we have something unusual, as I alluded to this year, which is that mail ballots are going to keep coming in and by the state law can actually be accepted and actually be counted for a week after the election. They have to, of course, be postmarked by Tuesday. Okay, John, so 76,000 leads for the Dems in Clark County. County. What is the statewide lead now? 
Well, it, it, you know, that's, that's, again, it's one of the frustrations that I run into every year on this is that the rural counties report slower or, or slower to be posted by the Secretary of State. But the lead in, in, in rural Nevada is probably going to be in raw ballots about 40,000 or, or, or so. And so the, the overall statewide lead, do the math, it's, 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 it's about probably just under 40,000 for the Democrats going into the last day of early voting, maybe 38 or 39,000, depending on how many rural votes were counted. So one of the interesting things you've been doing this year with your modeling is looking at, you know, if Biden and Trump each keep X percent of their base and Indies break, you know, Y number, you know, of ways, then what's going to happen? You came up with a new scenario yesterday in which, and I think this is for fun, right? We, we don't think this is probably going to happen, but if, not, if Biden got 90% of his base and Trump got 95% of his base and won Indies by only five, Biden would still win is, is what your tally showed. That was based on yesterday's numbers, and people should know if they go and look at these models that they're based on ballots cast, not on any projected view of what the electoral looked like. Although I'll get to that after all the all the, all the early vote numbers, and I'll start projecting what the electorate could look like. Uh, and that is why every year, every cycle, the Democrats work so hard to do two things: first, to get a voter registration lead, which they always do, and when I say always, for the last 10, 12 years, of about 5 or 6% or so, and because that will give them the advantage once they start doing what they also do better than Republicans generally, which is turn out their voters during this early voting period. So you combine that with the registration edge, they end up banking votes and, and, and having a lead. It was about 45,000 votes in 2016. There were fewer voters on, on the ballot, and it's probably going to end up somewhere around there by the time voting is done today, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. And so is that enough to make them feel comfortable? I, I think that, they, that they're going to be the clear favorites once this is all done. But, you know, four years ago today, I called the state for Hillary Clinton a- after early voting was over because I thought that that firewall was enough. Whether or not I'll do that uh, at the end of the day today, I, I'm not sure, but I will make predictions because it's a tradition. And even though this is a different kind of year and I'm kind of worried about it, I can't uh, hide in the corner now. I wanted to bring up one thing really quick, which is just that we mentioned indies and that's independent voters. That's yeah, for, right. those, for those who don't know. Actually, yeah, it's an umbrella term. I'm glad you brought that up. And it doesn't just mean uh, nonpartisan voters. It's all non-major party affiliated voters, meaning Green Party or Independent American Party, nonpartisans and, and, and anyone else, Independent American Party that's out there. Shout out to the Libertarians. Uh, John, the libertarians. David Colborn's going to kill me. <laughs> I remembered for you. John, you wrote something interesting about CD3 last night on the early voting blog. What, like, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure what to make of these numbers. They've been gradually narrowing. And CD3 is Representative uh, Susie Lee's uh, uh, district. She's a freshman Democrat who beat Danny Tarkanian for that district two years ago. The numbers are narrowing, and, 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 and her ballot lead has been gradually shrinking, I'm meaning the Democratic ballot lead has been gradually shrinking. Uh, that indicates to me that it's, there's the potential for that race to be close, which is somewhat surprising, only because 
Dan Rodeimer is a second or third tier candidate that even the Republicans in D.C. weren't happy with, and they tried to recruit some other people. But that is a district that that is a swing district, and Donald Trump won that district by a point in 2016. And so I need to look at the numbers after today, uh, and I don't even have the breakdown up for what it looks like after yesterday in, in CD3. But the two more days of early voting, the Republicans have been absolutely destroying the Democrats in early voting in that in that district while the Democrats are making up the ground as they are elsewhere in mail. But that race, to me, unless, unless there's a lot of crossover voting or independents really going big for Susie Lee, that race could be closer than people thought. You are predicting that Trump wins the rurals by at least 70,000 votes and maybe as many as 80,000? Is, is that, do you still feel that way this morning? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to tell on these things, of course. Uh, you know, even before all this voting started, uh, I knew Trump won the rurals by 58,000 votes in 2016. It's amazing how these numbers are just like embedded in my head, uh, like floating around there. I can, I can just access them uh, all the time. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that because this is, is my life and it's a sad one. But uh, <laughs> 58,000 votes, Trump won the rurals by a record, uh, a huge record. Uh, you know, he won it by way more than Mitt Romney in 2012, he won it by 40,000 votes. And, and just thinking about it, even before all this started, this year, I thought that he could maybe even increase that margin based on the polarization and how rural counties are in Nevada, maybe win it by 70,000 votes. I think it could be larger than that, depending on, on, on turnout. If it gets up past 80,000 votes, I think the Democrats may start to get a little nervous. And we'll know more about that when we look at the turnout. The, the flip side of that, though, Elizabeth and Joey, is that if they get to a certain lead by the end of early and mail voting, that means that there's fewer votes to be cast on election day. There's not going to be 100% turnout. There's probably not going to be 90% turnout. And there was some thought that the Republicans were going to save all their votes and swamp the Democrats on election day. That, to me, seems relatively unlikely to happen now, based on probably two-thirds of the vote already being in right now. And by the time the weekend is over with, with mail coming in, uh, there's going to be a huge amount of turnout. I can't imagine that, that we're going to get to 90% turnout, maybe not 85% in Nevada, which means that, that the turnout on election day probably is not going to be as big as people think. And we'll know a lot more at the end of, at the, end of the weekend. What was turnout like in the last election, just for those who don't know? That's a good question. It was about 77 percent in the in Nevada, Joey. And and, and I, when I've been doing the modeling, and you can look at the blog and see this, as Elizabeth knows, I've been going. I've been saying the minimum I think it's going to be is 80 percent, and then I've actually shown what it looks like at 85 percent. Even if you go to 85 percent, a lot of the vote is already in. A million people have already voted in Nevada by the time those rural numbers come in. More than a million people, and and about 1.4 million. It's probably the upper upper level, upper tier of what's, what the turnout is going to be. Would 80% be an all-time high? What, what was it that when Obama got elected that first time? Uh, you know, that's a very good question. I don't know that number. It's one of the few not floating around in my head that we could look it up. But it probably was close to that. But generally, Nevada turnout does not get above 80%. Even even in a presidential year, it's possible it was in 2008. That would be the only year I would think it might have been. And and I mean this this election, we've seen a lot more people voting across the country. And so we, I mean, obviously we expect it to be a lot higher here in Nevada as well. 
John, I know that on a day-to-day basis, you know, the numbers can shift quite a bit, but if you were, if, if today was over and with the numbers that you had, would you be, feel comfortable making a prediction? Maybe. I, listen, uh, th- this, is, th- this is a difficult thing for me. I, I was pretty confident when I called the election for Hillary Clinton on the Friday, after the Friday's early voting four years ago. It's a little bit different this year. There's a lot more voters. There's a lot more uncertainty because of mail ballots. Th- these numbers that we're talking about are all unreturned ballots, by the way. doesn't mean they're all going to be accepted. Most of them will. And it's the reason the Republicans have sued is they don't want them all to be accepted because they know what, what, what's going to happen. Listen, the state leans towards Biden. All the polling that is credible shows Biden up by four uh, to six points. And that is what the data, by the way, Joey, is showing that, 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 that Biden probably has about a, a four point lead. But uh, I'll make a prediction when I'm ready to make a prediction. Joey, you helped me by asking that question because I was able to check the Google machine. So turnout in Nevada in 2008 was 80.09, so just shy of 81%. So, so for, for, for it to get above that this year would really, would really be something. That, that's probably the record, Elizabeth. I mean, maybe we can go back to when, you know, in 1865, you know, the 17 people who lived here all turned out to vote. But uh, <laughs> in, in the modern era, I, I, I don't think it's gotten a higher than 80% very often, if at all. Did, did you vote? Did Were you one of those 17 that voted in 1865, John? I was there, Joey. Yeah, right after I came, I came from the Constitutional Convention and went and voted. And man, I was proud to cast my vote. And I did not vote early. Did you and Samuel Clemens get along? Yeah, I, I liked Orion a lot better because he was much more interested in politics than Sam was. But yeah, I got along with Sam too. Well, for, for those who don't know, I'm just, I have a weird fascination with this. The Territorial Enterprise, one of the first newspapers in Nevada, was where Samuel Clemens got his start. And uh, I think that's where John, I think that's where John also got his start. So <laughs> anyway. What you don't know, Joey, is that someone on this podcast uh, had had a role in the revived territorial enterprise. And I still remember vividly the night that we celebrated the beginning of Elizabeth's revived territorial enterprise in Carson City. And I believe it was at the much mourned and departed Adele's where we've spent many, many wonderful evenings. And there was a party to celebrate the territorial enterprise. And, and unfortunately, it ran out of funding. But uh, I, if I remember correctly, Elizabeth, Elizabeth launched it with, with an interview with, with Brian Sandoval in, in those pages. How's my memory doing so far? I'm so impressed. I'm not sure I even remembered that many details. We decided to do a monthly magazine. I think we put out only six issues. I was so sad when the, when the funding ran out, unfortunately, because I was having a grand old time. That interview with Governor Sandoval was remarkable. They had, Mary, his communications director, had slated 30 minutes and he gave me three hours and Mary was furious, but it was fantastic because I got all kinds of interesting information out of him during that time. It was, it it was pretty great. And he came to the launch party, which was, which was very gratifying as did hundreds of other people. That was, that was a great time. Thanks for mentioning that, John. You bet. And I'll just, I'll throw in real quick too. Uh, When I was a senior at the UNR journalism school, I did an independent study where I got the Territorial Enterprise Building in Virginia City recognized by the National Press Association as a uh, historically significant landmark to journalism. I remember that now, Joey. I think, uh, was Patrick File involved in that somehow? Yes, it was Patrick File and I. And the plaque is not on the building yet because of some disputes between the people who own the building. But (laughs) (laughs) but hopefully one day we'll get that plaque up there. 
recommend to listeners, if you've never been to uh, the museum in Virginia City, down in the basement, they have a number of uh, really interesting, you know, publishing pieces that Letter, are- Letter presses. Yeah, the printing press for the Territorial Enterprise, a typewriter that was owned by Samuel Clemens, AKA Mark Twain. It's actually, uh, it's quite, it's a small little uh, basement. It, it doesn't take long to see it all, but it, it, it's worth checking out. It, it might be closed now. It's kind of, it, sometimes it opens and sometimes it's closed. There is uh, some dispute between the ownership of the building that has caused some issues. Oh, I didn't realize that was affecting the museum as well. Yes, but you can go to the outside of the building and it's really cool just to check it out. There's tons <laughs> of plaques on the front of it. So We well, should uh, we should do an indie retreat in Virginia City one year, John. When we can go outside again, yes. But John, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me for the, for the last installment of this, for at least for four years. But we, we'll, be, we'll be back in four years with more <laughs> predictions from John and, and hopefully we'll have some interesting news to report next week with all the uh, numbers coming in. Thanks, Joey. In just a few days, we should have a much better idea of who will fill out the school boards in the state's most populous counties. With the coronavirus still presenting a massive issues for schools as they navigate both the health and financial consequences of the pandemic, Nevada Independent reporters Jackie Valley and Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez are here to break down what's at stake. All right, Jackie, I want to start with you. Uh, So the Clark County School District is among the largest school districts in the country, and it had a lot of problems to sort out even before the pandemic started. Uh, Before we dig into the election itself, could you talk a bit about what's on the line in these school board races in 2020? Yeah, it's interesting, Jacob. I feel like every cycle or so we're talking about how important school board races are. You know, it's in the district, it's 310,000 students they're shepherding. And you know, they have the largest class sizes, lackluster funding, uh, not ideal student achievement, and the list goes on and on. So we're always talking about how this group of seven individuals is an important governing body. Um, but really, the stakes are so much higher this year because of the pandemic. Um, the Clark County School District is operating under distance education right now. Um, and so the board is supposed to take a vote on November 12th about a transition plan for some sort of reopening. Um, so with the, whoever's voting, voted in may not be voting on the reopening, but they're certainly gonna be involved given that this pandemic is showing few signs of slowing down. Um, and so there's just going to be a lot to untangle in the aftermath of all this as well. So knowing all this, knowing that there's so much to untangle, uh, let's dig into the actual elections themselves. School board elections are pretty frequently contentious because there is a lot at stake. And I think 2020 hasn't really been too different. So can you give us a a kind of broad strokes view of what this election has looked like through 2020 so far? Yeah, so there are four trustee seats up for grabs this election cycle. Um, Three of them are involving trustees who are termed out. So we'll have three new faces regardless. And then the fourth seat in District E um, has incumbent Lola Brooks, who happens to be the the board president at the moment. Uh, She's running against a teacher actually named Alexis Salt in that district. So that's the one where we could still have a familiar face or an incumbent remain on the board. Um, But the other three will for sure bring new faces. And those are in District A, which is uh, Lisa Guzman versus Liberty Levitt. Uh, We have District B, which is Jeff Prophet versus Katie Williams. And then in District C, it's Evelyn Garcia Morales versus Tamika Henry. Um, and so I, 
you know, it's hard to say whether any one of those races is more competitive than the other. Cause I think they're all fairly competitive. I, I don't see necessarily a runaway race in any of those districts. Um, there's definitely some interesting uh, side stories uh, in each one. District B, for instance, has probably been the most partisan race. Um, Katie Williams is fairly outspoken on Twitter, uh, very much a true conservative. Uh, Jeff Prophet, um, he doesn't, he describes himself as a moderate Democrat. He doesn't get as partisan on social media, but I think you know, if you, if you watch the what's un, been unfolding in that race, it's clear it's been a little bit more partisan. Um, the a lot of the unions have backed uh, Jeff Prophet over Katie Williams, but she has a very significant uh, social media following. Uh, she did well in the primary, so it'll be an interesting race to watch. Um, you know, money versus social media influence, if you will. That's interesting. And, and these races are technically nonpartisan, right? And so uh, that nonpartisan label is, um, it, it may not actually have that much bearing on on the candidates themselves, right? They're not running nonpartisan races. Is, is that what you're saying? Right. And so, the, I mean, I think we've seen partisan politics creep into these races, despite them being uh, nonpartisan. And, you know, I even so, it, it's a hugely political process, no matter what. Um, I think, you know, you know, it, uh, school boards are always political, whether we're talking partisan politics or not. Um, you know, you have lots of dynamics at play between superintendents, uh, unions, uh, state superintendents. So it's definitely a, a, some political battles there. <laughs> And so with that, let's let's look at Washoe County. So Jasmine, you have been paying attention to the school board races up there. And like we did in Clark County, I'm interested in the stakes. Washoe has um, a, some unique problems. It's a much smaller school district than Clark County, but still much larger than anywhere else in the state. And so I think in 2020, there's a lot that the Washoe County School District has to on its plate. And so I'm curious then, what are the through lines? What are the issues that are at stake here in 2020 in Washoe County? Absolutely. Um, you know, the pandemic hasn't made the already existing issues in education any easier for Washoe County school leaders. Um, and, you know, some of the things that, has been, that have been going on here in Washoe is that, you know, distinctly from Clark County, Washoe School District decided to reopen at the start of the school year. And they went back and forth a little bit having to close schools and, you know, open um, due to this heavy um, smoke that we saw in the later summer months and early fall. Um, and so with that, you know, attached to some really heavy budget issues um, and also including a very late term resignation um, from one of the school district trustees who was also still up for re-election and is still on the ballot. Okay, well, well with that in mind then, let, let's look at some of these elections. Uh, what would you say are any through lines or really important things to take away from this election season so far? Yeah, so um, the primary narrowed the field by one seat. Um, Kurt Thigpen was the, um, got one more than 50% of the vote for uh, District D, making him the outright winner. And so that means there are three seats left, District A, E, and G. And so, you know, there's one incumbent, Angela Taylor. She's running again for District E. And um, District A, Scott Kelly is running again, even though he's technically not an incumbent anymore because he resigned in late August from the board following um, a This Is Reno article that detailed um, some findings about his uh, 
court documents from his divorce. Um, and so the Washoe County School District board president, Melina Raymond, um, asked him to resign and he did, but he is still trying to win another term for the board. Um, and so most of these candidates have, amid the pandemic, just focused on getting mailers out and um, really um, focusing on their online presence and participating in online candidate forums. But, you know, I think from all the candidates I spoke to, Scott Kelly really is, um, he was the one who said that he still did go out and knock on doors to meet voters. He's, you know, trying to make the case that he deserves another chance and another term on the board. Um, and so him and Scott, Scott Kelly and Jeff Church are, you know, they, they definitely also have the most tense um, fight for dis the District A seat. There are quite a few tensions between those two candidates. As for District E, uh, incumbent Taylor, who is also the first um, Black woman to be on the board in Washoe County, faces a first-time runner um, and network technician, Matthew. And, um, you know, Taylor said that she feels it'll be a close race. And then um, the at-large District G, we saw a candidate who was pretty low on the fundraising spectrum, actually lead the pack so that was interesting and that is diane nicolette and she to this point has refused to take um contributions for her campaign and she is facing ceo and engineer craig wessner um for this district okay and and so knowing that um obviously we talked about how ccsd has these real partisan divisions that are surfacing in a nonpartisan race has there been that kind of same partisan tint to washoe county um you know it hasn't been as clear as maybe some of the races that we heard about from uh clark county um these candidates are really focused on you know where are they going to balance the budget and you know, how are they going to, their plans for diminishing class sizes. Um, and there, there are some other kind of more unique ideas as well thrown in the mix about delaying the school bell schedule and letting older students sleep in a little bit. And, you know, Jeff Church, who is the um, running for District A against Scott Kelly, has an idea about, wants to explore the idea about having a live-in academy for at-risk students. So, um, you know, there's not been much in partisan politics in that sense, just a lot of trying to rebuild the school board. And a lot of the candidates are also really focused on how to, um, on how to increase favorability of the board in the eyes of the community. All right. Well, if you want to know more about the races for school board in either the Clark County School District or the Washoe County School District, you can find all that and more on our elections page at the NevadaIndependent.com. Jackie Valley covers education for us, and Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez covers Native American issues and Latino communities across the state. Jackie, Jasmine, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob.
All right, so we're on the third segment of the podcast this week, and I am joined by Luz Gray, our Spanish editor. Hi, Luz. How's it going? Hi, Joey. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. And so, you know, we're kind of been doing this segment where we're getting to know everybody a little bit more behind the scenes. And so I, I wanted to know, you know, just, you know, let's start with what kind of got you into journalism, Luz? Oh, well, that's a big question, Joey. <laughs> I got into journalism because I remember my dad used to read the newspaper every day after work. So that got my attention. I wanted to know why he liked reading the news so much. So I grew up with that sense of wanting to know more about what was going on around me. I wanted answers to my questions about topics that were not clear to me. So I decided to study journalism so I could learn how to channel my curiosity and get the tools to inform the public properly. And so then you went to college and then you came to the United States. Where did you go to college? Well, I obtained my bachelor's degree in journalism in 1998 in Mexico City, where I am from. And when I moved to Las Vegas in 2000, I saw there were a couple of newspapers in Spanish and an AM station in Spanish, but that was it. Years later, we got the first FM station in Spanish and also a Spanish news on a local TV channel. And, and so you run the, the Spanish, the Nevada Independent in Espanol, the Spanish page, and we do a lot of similar reporting between the two pages. What is the, you know, kind of the reason behind it? What was the, the, the reason you wanted to join the Indy and kind of do the Spanish page? Well, first, I want to thank you because you really help us with this, you know, bridging the gap in between these two communities. You help us with the Spanish versions of some explainers we do. You help us with video and now with the podcast. So you help us with that uh, a lot. You know, even though the Spanish-speaking community has more options to get their news now, I still think there's a need to keep them informed about issues that are not always available in Spanish or are not easy to follow. That's why I think the Nevada Independent in Espanol plays a very important role. We not only provide news in Spanish, but also have resources such as our Elections 2020 section or the Coronavirus in Nevada one. We have translated into Spanish key information related to the election, such as the ballot questions or a mail-in voting explainer. We're using interactive tools and multimedia resources, so all that information is easy to access for the Latina community. We also have our radio show, Cafecito con Lucy Michelle, which goes on air every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. on Fiesta 87.7 FM here in Las Vegas. And let's not forget about our podcast. So far, we have 143 episodes. And so, you know, that, that podcast started you know, right after this podcast, and we kind of have been working to grow them both together. So having, you know, both the radio show and the podcast is also a very important tool for us because every week we have, you know, different guests. We cover topics such as immigration, of course, now the election, a series on the election. We have also talk about education. And, and you also, on top of the podcast and the Spanish page and everything else you do, you're a very small team over there at the Spanish page, and we try to work with you a lot over on the English page, but you guys also have a newsletter for uh, Spanish speakers. Can you explain to me what that is? Yes, we also have a newsletter. We send it to our subscribers every Monday morning. So if you have Spanish-speaking friends, please help us spread the word about the Nevada Independent in Español. All right, cool. Luz, thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the Spanish page before we wrap up? Well, I just want to highlight what you mentioned, Joey, is, of course, a very small team. So that's why we need the support of our 
English speaking friends. So like I said, if you know somebody who can benefit from all these resources we have, and just invite them to go to our Nevada Independent and Español page and listen to our radio show and our podcast. All right, great. Luz, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. All right, Megan, before we get into anything else, let's start with the numbers. So noting that we're recording at about 9.30 a.m. on Friday, October 30th, uh, happy observed Nevada Day, everyone. Uh, what can you tell us about the data? Right. So we're sitting just a little bit below about uh, 99,000 cases here in Nevada. We're, we're probably going to hit 100,000 COVID cases here pretty soon in the next couple of days. We've been um, anywhere from you know 800 to just a little over a thousand new cases a day, so um, we're probably probably going to hit that if not if not today, but probably over the weekend. Um, looking at the deaths, we're a little bit less than 1,800 deaths right now. We've talked about before in this podcast that we've been seeing cases climb since about the middle of September. We have not seen a corresponding rise in the number of deaths. Obviously, it takes some time for, for deaths to play catch up with the numbers just because it, you know, again, it takes time for you to get sick and fall ill enough to be hospitalized and then, you know, uh, potentially, um, you know, pass away from the illness. So we do expect those, those trends, those death trends to lag case trends a little bit. So we're obviously just keeping an eye on that. And then we're at about 88,000 uh, recoveries right now. Again, we just track those numbers to get a sense of, um, you know, how many people who have had the virus have recovered from it. And then that gives us a sense of sort of active cases uh, in the state. Um, the one other thing that we should talk about is hospitalization numbers. So we've been talking about that on this, this podcast every week that we were kind of at a little bit of a plateau. Uh, the last couple of days, we have started to see some increases in hospitalization numbers. Uh, not, not too significant yet, but um, as of yesterday, we're just a little bit below 600 uh, confirmed and suspected COVID-19 hospitalizations. Uh, it's been a little bit since we've been at that level. Um, we had mainly been, you know, sort of below, uh, you know, 400 and it was, uh, or below 500, I'm sorry. And it was kind of uh, big news when we got above above 500 and now we're, we're pushing 600. So the hospital association here has said the hospital capacity is good. You know, they're not concerned about that yet. But as, you know, the fall progresses, we get into winter. Not only are we expecting, you know, COVID cases to continue to rise, but we're also expecting to see flu cases. And flu season always puts pressure on hospitals. So the hospitals are looking at, okay, we need to balance uh, what we're expecting to see from COVID with what we're expecting to see from the flu. I see. So get, get your flu shot, what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> um, so I want to ask about something that happened earlier this week, and that's we finally got the first details of what the state will do when the country has access to a coronavirus vaccine sometime in the near future, one would hope. Um, so can you break down what the governor said? And I know that press conference was on Monday. Yeah. So we finally got a copy of the, the immunization plan. The state's referring to it as a, as a playbook. Um, on exactly what you know, vaccine distribution is going to look like when we do finally get a vaccine, as you mentioned. Um, this is a document that the state and all states were required to submit to the CDC uh, now a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, state officials have described this as a living document. So this is, you know, a framework, but obviously things can change based on, you know, the circumstances, you know, when we are getting closer to a vaccine. Uh, the interesting thing, which I don't think will come as a shock to anyone, but it did lay out sort of the framework for who would be priority uh, to get the vaccine. So as you might expect, your hospital workers, healthcare workers that are on the front line are, are at the top of the list because, uh, you know, they're working in, in close and sustained proximity with, with COVID patients. And so, um, you know, in fact, the document says, you know, if you are someone who has, you know, close contact for a long time with COVID patients, if you're, you know, a doctor who's working in the ICU treating COVID patients, you're, you're essentially going to be the first in line to get the vaccine, which I think, um, you know, makes sense for, for all of us. And then it kind of goes through and lays out, um, if anyone's interested, we have we have the document linked online in our story, but it goes through and sort of lays out tier by tier the different categories of people and the, the priority um, that they have in, in receiving the vaccine. So it lays out different categories of essential workers. Um, you know, it mentions uh, teachers and higher education professionals. It mentions first responders, and it kind of goes through and categorizes all of those. And then it also includes, um, you know, elderly individuals, people with, with pre-existing conditions. So if you actually look at that document, you can kind of see where people fall on the list and, and there's going to be kind of this really interesting metric to distribute the vaccine. Essentially the way it works is that uh, it'll start with the county that's ex being hardest hit by COVID at the time. So for instance, right now it's Washoe County. So if the vaccine came out today, you know, Washoe County uh, health of, uh, healthcare workers would be at the top of the line, right? Cause that's the first category and the Washoe County is the hardest hit, uh, the hardest hit county. Um, but it's really interesting. You actually, uh, they'll be distributing 80% of the category. So 80% of Washoe County healthcare workers would sort of get the vaccine before it moves to the next category, you know, in the next county and sort of goes on down from there. So it's this very complicated metric, but it's their way of sort of trying to ensure that, that the vaccine can, um, you know, be distributed to those who need it and also be distributed to the, the counties that are sort of experiencing the worst outbreaks since, you know, whoever's whoever that is in that position at that time will obviously, um, you know, potentially be in a, in a position where they, they need it more than counties that are not as experiencing a severe outbreak. Hmm. So you mentioned it just there, and I actually want to ask about this, and that's Washoe County. Now, for a couple of weeks, we've seen that the numbers are rising in Washoe and some concern from the Washoe County Health District um, that the numbers were getting to a point that was rising to the level of public concern. So there's actually an emergency meeting this week from the from the state's COVID task force. So can you tell me what was the decision there? I mean, what, what were the numbers leading to this? And now what is the state doing to address these rising numbers? Right. So, I mean, you know, as we know, cases are, are rising statewide, but Washoe County has really, um, you know, been hit hardest by, by this. They have a very high case rate and test positivity rate uh, right now, much higher than that of Clark County, which had kind of experienced the worst of the outbreak over the summer. So as a result, the task force, like you mentioned, called this emergency meeting and wanted Washoe County to bring forward, you know, this plan saying, OK, essentially, what are we going to do to get this um, under control? The big thing that Washoe County proposed was, as everyone will recall, a couple couple weeks ago, actually now is a month ago, <laughs> time is time is but a construct. Uh, the governor announced that he was raising the limit on public gatherings from 50 people to 250 people, and there was a provision in that emergency directive that said, you know, if you want, you can even hold larger events subject to you know the review of the local health authorities. So Washoe County you know, has been experiencing rising cases for quite some time. And they essentially had said, we're, we're doing a 30-day moratorium on any events larger than 250 people. You know, we just don't think that given the case growth, we're, we're ready to have anything larger than 250. But then at this task force meeting on Thursday, they actually went one step further and said, okay, 
you know, we were at 250 people for these public gatherings. We think in light of the rising case numbers, we need to go back to that 50 person uh, standard. So that's, that's what they will be doing. It's worth noting that uh, county officials have said that they will review uh, events larger than 50 people if they're going to be held, you know, in an outdoor setting with, with fixed seating. Uh, they'll review those on a case-by-case basis. So it's it's not, you know, absolutely prohibiting events above 50 people. But, um, you know, they've just said, in, in light of what we're seeing in Washoe County, it's just not smart to be having these larger gatherings where, you know, you just, by putting more people in a room, you're increasing the chances that one of them might possibly have COVID and then potentially affect, uh, infect other uh, attendees. So that was the biggest uh, proposal that they presented to the task force. Other uh, suggestions that they made and they plan on working on um, better messaging to the community. I've heard a lot of talk about this, but the biggest issue has been um, state and local health officials have said has been the private gatherings, right? People, um, you know, maybe with, for instance, actually uh, the Department of Business and Industry mentioned this at the task force meeting that, you know, okay, maybe employees are being really good with their customers, right? Um, Maybe you uh, you work at a retail store, right? And so, um, you know, employees are social distancing and wearing masks with their customers, but then they go to the break room and they take the masks off with their coworkers and then you're getting some, some spread that way. Or, you know, people are attending private gatherings, um, you know, with, with friends and family and not adhering to those, um, you know, protocols that we've, you know, have now been drilled into our heads um, so much, you know, mask wearing and, and social distancing. And so part of what they're hoping to focus on is that sort of public awareness aspect of it. They also want to work on more enforcement in businesses. We have gotten a sense um, from the the Department of Business and Industry and from OSHA that uh, enforcement or compliance with the state's health and safety directives on coronavirus is a little bit down from from where it was at the beginning. So they just want to work to get those numbers back up. Um, And then the other um, aspect that they're working on, which is a little bit harder, is the testing and contact tracing infrastructure. We've seen some backlogs with the Nevada State Public Health Lab that's led to delayed uh, testing turnaround times. Additionally, the contact tracing workforce in Washoe County has been overwhelmed by the case numbers. So um, it, it's something like, I, I wanna say it's like a, a quarter of all cases from the last week have not um, had a disease investigation uh, done on them yet. That's the first step in the contact tracing process. Uh, so there is a bit of a lag time with that. And if there is a lag, that means you're not able to adequately you know, contact trace people's contacts and get them to quarantine. And, and that's sort of a big tool in preventing the spread of, of COVID. Hmm. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that. But as always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank John Ralston, Elizabeth Thompson, Jackie Valley, Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, Megan Messerly, and Luce Gray for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. Do you have thoughts about the podcast? Let us know by emailing me at joey at thenvindie.com or jacob at thenvindie.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find it on Spotify and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.